we're with you again today by the grace of God to discuss the Scriptures and talk about the Scriptures and teach the Scripture and preach the Scripture. It occurs to me uh, with uh, world affairs devolving uh, so quickly as they are, and uh, sometimes people talk to me because I have about uh, their the state of the world, not only because I'm a preacher, but because I'm trained in economics and because I've been involved in international business for the last decade, and ask me, well, what, you know, in concerning things, what should we do considering the state of the world and some of the troubles that are there? I tell Christians the same things I learned early on in my own Christian life. The most important thing is get yourself out of debt once you're out of debt and you know, owe no man anything but to love him, uh, you're in a much better uh, position to think soberly uh, concerning the use of this world and uh, not its abuse. And I trust that uh, as, a, as God's servant, uh, but a free man uh, to men, uh, you can then find yourself uh, serving the Lord with uh, sincerity and sobriety and urgency. So, What's the application? The application, really one that uh, very few Americans sees, very few Christian Americans sees, but it's the same old advice, and that is to get out of debt, and the Lord would have you out of debt, uh, so do that. Now, we're going to take up the matter of Adam and Eve some more. We're taking up the dispensations of God, and we're taking up the first dispensation, Although I could uh, just go to the next dispensation, I really believed after listening to myself a little bit that I omitted some important aspects of this first dispensation, and I just felt uh, a need to take up take it up some more. So I'm going to take up three subjects today uh, concerning the first dispensation. I'm going to take up the serpent. I'm going to take up the woman who who became known as Eve. And I'm going to take up the tree, and I'm going to take those three things up uh, today. Hopefully it'll benefit you. It, certainly it'll relieve my mind that I didn't leave a few important stones unturned. So if you have your Bible and you're able to turn to it, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. If you're riding in your car, I trust this will find you at peace and that the Word of God will bring to you in uh, evening drive-time traffic uh, something that is uh, substantially missing as you drive competitively in the heat. So, in in Genesis chapter 2, we remember that we have the serpent introduced to us. Actually, Genesis chapter 3, we have introduced to us in, in, in order Adam, and then uh, Eve, as she's in Adam, and then the serpent. We found that uh, God took out of Adam, and so she was... Uh, uh, out of him, and she's bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, and that it was given to Adam uh, uh, two commandments. One commandment was, was given to Adam, and, and this the, uh, the one that he uh, broke, and that commandment was that, in, that not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat thereof, dying you will die, or surely, certainly, that, that, that's a Hebraism, for certainly you will die. Just as God had given him the liberty, certainly, to eat from all the trees except that, uh, he told him certainly he would die. And, of course, the, one, some would say the second lie 
that Satan told was, you, you see, you did not die. But the, but the Bible said, dying you will die in the day that you eat of it. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as one day, and every man has died in the day uh, that they sinned, even those who have not sinned after the similitude of Adam's sin. But we have introduced to us, besides Adam and Eve in the garden, we have this serpent introduced to us, the Nahash, and we talked a little bit about it, how the word means a shining one, how that creature was not the creature that we now see when we see a serpent, that that creature was attractive, certainly attractive to Eve, and certainly able to speak. Uh, it, was a, it was a creature that didn't shock her with the, uh, with the uh, when enabled to speak. Now the question is, was it naturally able to speak? Was it supernaturally able to speak as it became enabled by Satan? Well, we don't really know that, but it wasn't so shocking to her that she didn't converse with it, and it, and it wasn't so disgusting to her that she, she wasn't attracted by, what, by it and what it had to say. Although we do realize that behind the, the serpent, and for this reason it was cursed, of course, but behind that serpent was Satan. Let me say that uh, something about the nature of evil, because we could fall into, if we're not careful, we could fall into heathen forms of discussion about evil and opposites and so forth, which are not accurate according to the Bible. For example, in Greek philosophy, the opposite of spiritual is material. So we we say, well, here's a here's a something here's something uh, material, and and then if it's invisible, we say here's something spiritual. Well, that's not really the case in the Bible. The Bible discerns the difference between physical. Spirit uh, it doesn't contrast physical and spiritual, but contrasts uh, spiritual more on a moral basis. So the opposite of spiritual in the Bible is carnal. There are things that are seeable and that are visible and invisible, uh, distinguished in the Bible, but that which is spiritual has to do with the judgment of the moral quality, evil, either evil spiritually or or. Uh, good spiritually. So we do not regard, uh, it is not a proper Christian regard to say that the opposite of spiritual is uh, is material. That's a, that's a Greek uh, thought, and so we want to be straight on that. Now the other thing about evil is that, uh, therefore, uh, there is a heathen practice. There are the Stoics, who regarded certain physical things as evil. For example, they regard the body as evil, or they regard other materials as evil. And this kind of philosophy, by the way, is leaking into our society, where, where we'll think certain things are evil. Well, for example, our, our public schools have bought into this program, and, uh, you know, shame on our public schools for lots of reasons, this included, but to teach our children, say no to drugs. Well, that's a something material. You don't you don't there's no reason to speak to an inanimate object like a drug. You, you really you need to say no to yourself. Say no to yourself. Or um, say no to guns. Well, there's nothing the matter with a gun. It's a piece of metal. We're going to look a little later here at a piece of metal and what had to be done with it, but a gun is a, is a piece of metal broadly speaking. Oh, it doesn't have to be metal all metal or certainly even doesn't have to be mostly metal, but Let's just say a gun is a chunk of metal and is not an evil thing. 
evil does, is not out there coming in. That's one of the great problems we have today is that we're, we're teaching that thing which is wrong, and that's evil. Evil is taking a good thing for a wrong purpose. That's what evil is. For example, God created this Nahash, this beast of the field, for a certain purpose. I, I don't know what the purpose of it was, but we know that God created everything with a purpose, brought them to Adam. He gave them names. He called this thing the Nahash. It became known uh, today, uh, serpent, English word, became known as that slithering creature because, because God cursed it. Uh, due to its participation in the sin uh, of Adam. But uh, it is not an evil thing, but, it, but what is evil was a good thing taken to an improper use. God made that creature for Adam and Eve to enjoy. He did not make it for the use of Satan to twist against him. Uh, so there are the, the evil is a principle. Evil is a principle of taking that which is good and turning it to an improper use as defined by God. And so, uh, w now, the principle of evil is also something that needs to be defined, and we've misdefined it, and we've misconstrued it, and we teach it improperly, not only to ourselves, uh, but also to children, and God tells you, be careful, you might stumble a child, and it'd be better for you to, to take a millstone, hang it around your neck, and be thrown into the sea, thereby drown than it is to stumble a child, but we're constantly teaching that evil is out there trying to get in. The Lord Jesus Christ said it is not what enters into the man that's evil, but evil proceeds out of the heart of man. So evil is in us. It's not out there trying to get in. It's in us trying to get out, expressing itself in our deeds. This important thing to know. So you see that, that Satan uses that which God made for his own purpose. He used the serpent, and he used Eve, which God made for his purpose. Uh, and it was a purpose to help, uh, to be a help suitable for Adam. And the purpose of Eve was not to drag Adam uh, into sin. Well, she didn't drag him, but to, to tempt Adam or to, to uh, go into sin and give Adam the, the, the conundrum of whether he would obey God in the first command or obey God in the second command. And what was that second command? Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And so you see that Adam willingly went into sin uh, with Eve, and he was not deceived. But, but Eve, as we call her, although she's named later, the woman, Isha, the woman Eve, was was completely deceived by the serpent. And we'll look at that a little later in our discussion. But we want to see how it is that God reversed all these things in Christ, and that's where I felt like I maybe left a few stones unturned, because we have this serpent, and he is, uh, from the garden on, the serpent, that creature, is emblematic of the one. It is the visible version of that enemy of God and man that we cannot see. It, it, is the, it is God's enemy behind the serpent that we have uh, to see here by the, with the eyes of faith. So I want to take up a scripture that we see what the Lord Jesus Christ did. You remember the promise out of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, the Lord said to the serpent, between thy seed and her seed, and the, the Lord really talking 
uh, cursing the creature serpent, but talking to Satan behind him, saying, okay, from now on there's enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. And we discussed the seed of the woman, what an unusual statement that is, and how it's answered by the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there was an occasion in the wilderness journey of the Israelites that came later where a serpent was used by God symbolically to demonstrate uh, the future work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, that's our Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of Satan, that, that is one who was, okay, in, it typified, or tempor- we might even say temporarily, Judas Iscariot, uh, doing, carrying out the work of Satan, finally will be uh, the one who comes in his own name, who, the, who Israel will, uh, not the Israel of God, but who, who, who Israel and unbelief will receive. They rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, they will receive him. The, the enmity is there, but God triumphs in the promise, God triumphs over uh, the seed of the woman triumphs over Satan in the same act that the serpent bruises uh, the seed of the woman, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is uh, something that's uh, elemental. This is something that should have been known by Israel. Uh, when Nicodemus came to the Lord Jesus by night in John chapter 3, Jesus said to him, Verily, verily, I say to thee, except a man be born from above or born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then later he said, uh, except a man be born out of water and, and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. And then Nicodemus said, well, how can these things be? And, and Jesus said, you're a teacher in Israel, you don't know this, that's why it's just an elementary thing. And then he says to him, as Mo, in verse 14, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, the serpent in the wilderness, which you could find in Numbers chapter 14, was a a device God used to picture uh, before his time the the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in Numbers 21, uh, you find the the children of Israel having uh, one of their uh, rebellions against God, and and, and because of it, God brought as judgment fiery serpents among them, he, he brought to them this now uh, word based on the word for nakash and a worse, uh, word based on burning, nakashim uh, seraphim. These were the burning seraphs, uh, or the, uh, the uh, excuse me, the burning nakash, uh, which were sent among the people, and they bit the people. It says in Numbers 21, well, we'll just read here from uh, verse uh, 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way, or grieved, or they became impatient, really, we could say, because of the way. It wasn't that far. It's 11 days' trip. They took eight and a half years to do it, but it was an 11 days' trip. And they get like we get. 
uh, grieved and impatient. They're human beings, and they get that way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Now, we don't all do that, but uh, some do. And they spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loathes this light bread, which is manna. Now that's where it starts. That's, that's where they start a grumbling. That's how we start grumbling. We despise this manna, the bread that came down from heaven. We despise the Lord Jesus Christ. We despise his word. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against the brand of the Lord, that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, an image, and set it up on a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. And so Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it on a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And I want to say that is a wonderful, and it is the Lord's example of what the gospel really is. Simply look to the Lord Jesus Christ and live. That, that symbol of a Satan, of a serpent, stuck through with a stake, is the, is the symbol of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the children of Israel kept that symbol, they kept that uh, piece of metal, and they began to revere it and light candles to it and probably parade around on a parade uh, once every year or whatever. They began to, to uh, hold that symbol up as something uh, to honor and so forth. And in Second uh, Kings 18, you'll see that Hezekiah melted it down, said, look, this is a piece of brass. It's just a picture of of the real thing. And that's the way people are. They take pictures and images of the real thing, and they revere the images and pictures rather than the, the real thing. Christians do that. Jews do that. All men do that. That's why God has given to us only certain symbols, and the rest he has put out of his sight. He's only given us a few symbols to observe. As Christians, for example, there's a, there's a loaf of bread, a cup, a common cup, uh, a head covering for the woman, and water baptism. Other than that, we don't have any symbols, but of course we invent many. So looking to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is all someone must do to be saved, look and live. And we have that pictured in the, in the book of Genesis as well, because it is, it is God who makes the coat and clothes Adam and Eve. They do absolutely nothing uh, to, to be uh, rescued from their condition of shame. They do nothing whatsoever. God does everything. He sheds blood. He comes up with the solution. He gives it to them freely. Now, I also want to say that as we, we're, what we're trying to do is expose the serpent here, is I want to say that it's important that we unveil or that we take away the disguise that Satan gives to us because he's, he's a master of disguise, he's a master of subtlety, and so we're going to look just a little bit more when we come back at how Satan worked behind the We'll look here at 2 Corinthians 11. We want to unmask further Satan behind the scenes here, and I want to tell you that uh, and demonstrate to you out of the scriptures that we're not just um, uh, imposing this, although I 
I doubt that very many serious Bible students would even consider that we're imposing upon the Scripture that Satan is the serpent. But uh, let me just read now out of 2 Corinthians 11 what Paul said to the church at Corinth. He said, I am je-, and remember, this is a church that he started, that he began, and he said, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, one of the things that we we see here is that what happened to Eve is that she was beguiled or she was deceived. She She was seduced, as it were. It is a word that can mean seduction but it, it really means that she was deceived, she was totally tricked, and uh, elsewhere in the Scripture we can see about her uh, deception, and as we turn to the topic of the woman, we'll do that. But notice, which, which we'll do shortly, but notice that uh, the subtlety that was, was characteristic, or the, really the craftiness that characteristic of, this, of the serpent uh, was a was an indicator of the character of our arch enemy. Now, later in that very same passage of Scripture, in the same chapter, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 14, uh, we see that, uh, we, we'll see the, identi- the blatant identification where it says, where it talks about those who follow Satan, that, that Christ has his ministers, uh, that Satan also has his ministers. And their, their purpose... The same old purpose, as always, was to beguile and, through subtlety, corrupt the minds from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, what is the simplicity? Well, that doesn't mean everything is for simple-mindedness. That's not what it means, but it means the straightforwardness and the clarity that is in Christ, such as look and live, such as believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But what, what are those who oppose the teaching of God's ministers? Well, they are false apostles, verse 13 of that same passage, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And now we see some of what the subtlety was. We see some of what the deception was. You see, deception, subtlety, has to do with misrepresentation. And what Satan did to Eve is he misrepresented himself through the serpent, right? Now misrepresenting himself through false apostles and deceitful workers, making them look as if angels of light, uh, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. And so Satan, Lucifer, the devil, all those names, uh, Lucifer being uh, the angel of light, he, he represents himself as an angel of light, his ministers as if apostles of Christ. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Now, that is the key upon which Satan operates. Satan operates on the, the basis of deceit, of deceit. And so now we can easily turn our subject to the way he deceived the woman. This is not a very happy thought to the woman. Well, you know, the thought of our sin and the thought of 
of what Satan has made us is often not pleasant to any of us. Here's what the Scripture teaches about partly about what happened there in the garden. And it's taught to us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 in the context of how a woman should behave. It says in verse 9, 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, here's how a Christian woman should behave. In like manner, well, all women should behave this way, especially Christian women. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not broided hair, or gold or pearls, or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Now, the Bible's not talking so much about clothing. In fact, the Bible here teaches that it's not talking about clothing. Uh, it says women should adorn themselves in modest apparel. Fine. A woman should be modest. A woman should show some shame, just like a man should, because after all, we're sinners and should be sober, but should clothe herself with good works. Well, that's another message another time, and I will give it. But let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Now, here is what was given to woman in the judgment. It said that your desire, the Lord says, your desire will be toward your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is the same phrase repeated about sin after Cain. In other words, sin desires to have you, but you will rule over it. Well, here it says you will desire to rule your husband, but he will rule over you. That is the way that God has it. So God has in woman the subordination of her authority to the man who is the head. Then in the church, Paul takes that trait and carries it forward and said, I suffer not a woman to teach, neither to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. A woman is not supposed to teach the scriptures. Uh, she can teach mathematics, she can teach English, she can teach all kinds of things, and the woman is not to be in authority over the man. And that's especially true that a married woman, uh, uh, the picture here is marriage, but it's generally true woman to man, and it's specifically true wife to husband, that a woman should not usurp or take the man's authority, but to be in silence. And she should not teach, but the man should teach. Now, what do we have today? Well, we have all kinds of women teaching the Scripture. Now, what, what does the Bible say about it? Well, it says this, For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. Now, Adam has his problems, but one of the problems was not that he was deceived. He was not deceived. But the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. And let me tell you, this phrase is not mild. This, this phrase here, that the woman was deceived, was that the woman was entirely and completely deceived and was in the transgression. A man, the man was not deceived. I noted with interest when I heard, uh, and I don't know if it's still true, but at one time it was true, and I heard from a man who sold cars, that on the, and, and of course buying a car, I've never bought a new car, I really don't ever want to, but what, a, what an experience it is the the whole uh, uh, deceptive negotiating process of buying a car. But I heard from a man who sold a, quite a number of cars who understood very much about how to sell cars that women pay 6% more for vehicles than men do just because, what, they're more easily tricked. This is a true thing. A woman is more easily deceived. Now, that doesn't make her worse. Uh, that doesn't make her better. It just makes her a woman. 
the man, Adam, was not deceived. He, he, he was not tricked. He had his eyes wide open. Now, some would say that's even worse. Well, the Bible doesn't say it's even worse. It just says it's different. We're all sinners. Male and female won't last into the resurrection. They will be the, will be the same. will be the same. There won't be uh, these arrangements in the future. But for now, there are these arrangements, and we see that Satan consistently moves through the woman. The deceiver that he is, he constantly does that. That's why we see, for example, the woman and the leaven in the parables that we covered earlier, where, where we saw the evil influence uh, symbolized by the woman bearing the leaven, the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees, the leaven of the Herodians, into three measures of meal until the whole was leavened. That's why we saw, for example, in the... That's why we see, for example, in the book of Zechariah, that when... when the, the, the final days do come, that the mystery, and the mystery of iniquity is no longer in mystery form, but becomes invisible form, that wickedness is symbolized in the Scripture in the book of Zechariah by a woman in the ephah, and that the commercial system, uh, armed probably with the religious system, will set up a, a false religion on her own pedestal in the land of Shinar uh, in old Babylon. Well, that's prophetic. We'll, we'll come to that as we take up uh, the dispensation that in which that terminates the arrangements of God. But, but for now, we can just rest assured that God has said for a good reason here that men should teach the Scriptures. That's just a fact, and that men should lead in their homes. You remember I talked about men being omitters and women being committers? You see that tendency to usurp, that tendency to rise up and take over. You see that among women. In fact, I see it very much in my experience when I'm looking to get something done. The women volunteer. The women want to do it. The men, they don't. Women are certainly more forward oftentimes, uh, for example, to serve. But there is also in woman that fallen nature, which gives expression in women by the way of usurpation. That is, to go outside their proper authority. Now, the same, the same sin, the same sin nature, expresses in men the unhappy circumstance of letting them do it. When I travel in the third world, and I've traveled to a lot of villages over the last decade or so in Africa, one thing that you can be sure to see as you approach a village, as you come upon a village in the middle of the afternoon, say about 3 o'clock, as you pass the fields on your way to the village, you see the women out working in the fields, working hard, carrying their children, busting sod, just working like crazy, uh, uh, old women uh, carrying uh, uh, up and down steep slopes, large jerry cans of water, uh, working very hard. And then as you come to the village, middle of the afternoon, you see the men all hanging around the bar, waiting for the young men to bring the beer. What a pathetic bunch of people we are. We're, we're a pathetic, hopeless, uh, sinful bunch. We do that thing which we ought not to do. We don't do that thing which we ought to do. Thank God that Christ has delivered us from that, but he has placed us in order. God is a God of order. He's not a God of confusion, and it is high time for men 
to take Christian men especially, but all men, to take the lead, and it is high time for women to take their place behind their men and next to their men and letting them lead. Well, that's what we see about the woman here in the first dispensation. And boy, do we have the problem. I mean, God sent us, sent them out of the garden. He sent them out covered. He sent them out unashamed. He sent them out with charges. But boy, did we come out, boy, did our parents come out with a problem that they passed along to us. Uh, Aren't you glad that God provides the solution in Christ. Now, the last thing I want to take up today is I want to take up the, the, the picture here of the tree. We have, in the middle of the garden, two trees. We have the tree of life, and we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there they are right next to each other. They're in the middle of the garden. God planted them there, one to test man and the other to give to man uh, eternal life. We know from the scripture that the other was to give eternal life because when God sent man out of the garden he said behold the man has become as one of us to know good and evil now lest he put forth his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever and the scripture breaks off there with that unthinkable thought therefore God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken so he drove out the man now he drove out the man, of course, in, in the man is the woman, she is taken out of man, and so when he drove out the man, he drove the woman out with him. Now, here we have these two trees, and interestingly is the thing that, that, that Adam and Eve did not do. They did not eat of the tree of life. Some would say, well, what if they did eat of the tree of life? Well, that's not what happened. They were, they were those our our first parents if we can if we want to call them that our first parents are those who did not eat of the tree of life in fact it was them who who not only did not eat of the tree of life but ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when they were told not to so you say what if they ate of the tree of life first well they didn't they wouldn't have been them if they'd have done that they're the ones who didn't eat of it and who did eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they're the ones who did the wrong thing. And that's our problem. We got our hands full with that one without wondering what would have happened if they did this, done this or that. It, it is them who didn't. And it is you who, who doesn't. You're the same way. You have, for example, the, the Lord Jesus Christ who saved you from your sins, uh, right there, in Him you live and move and have your being. You 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 inhale not you you couldn't inhale His air if it wasn't for Him. Your heart wouldn't beat if it wasn't for Him. Uh, you couldn't speak. You couldn't drive your car. You couldn't think if it wasn't for Him. And do you partake of Him? Do you do you eat of Him as John six symbolizes? Do you do you take the bread of life? No, you don't. It is your nature to not do that. It is your nature to run away from him and to involve yourself with everything that is not him. In fact, it is your nature to avoid him and to take up anything but him. So there's no no surprise that they didn't take 
of the tree of life, and yet in their fallen state, God has to drive them out of the garden because they would perpetuate, given the opportunity, they would perpetuate their fallen state and never attain to the glory that God intended to them. And is that false? No, that's absolutely true. You look at all the measures of man. In fact, I hear Christian people even saying there can be no greater thing than to an extent to extend a life. Well, I'll tell you something. There's something greater than that every minute of every day, and that's freely receiving eternal life from the Lord Jesus Christ by believing on him. People today are complaining about what health insurance costs, what kind of health care they can get. I hear it all the time. If I ever talk to somebody, for example, if I want to hire someone, I hear all the time about what kind of health insurance can I have, what kind of care do I get. My goodness, eternal life is free, and you won't even take it. And not by any effort can you extend your life. The Lord Jesus Christ says you cannot extend your life four inches. You can't extend your life three minutes or two minutes. Uh, And I don't care what kind of health program you put yourself in. You cannot add one speck to your life. So we have the tree in the middle of the garden. We have two trees. We have a garden, and we want to talk about the tree that the Lord Jesus Christ selected when we come back. We're talking about the tree that the Lord Jesus Christ chose. You see... Adam picked the wrong tree. Eve picked the wrong tree. They were influenced by Satan to take up the wrong tree. And our Lord Jesus Christ took the right tree. But it cost him. It was costly to him. He sacrificed everything. As the parables said that we had discussed some weeks ago, the parables of Matthew 13, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago, he sold, he's the one who sold everything that he had. He came to give his life a ransom for many. Galatians chapter 3 reads this, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Now, here, that's the tree the Lord Jesus Christ selected. He selected the tree that, made him a curse. Of course, uh, Paul, in writing the letter to the Galatians, uh, quotes a scripture. I think he's quoting out of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21 there, wherein the Bible uh, uh, provides inside the law itself, and in the repetition of the law, uh, we can read about it in Deuteronomy 21, verse, let's see, verse 22. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put and, and he be to be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him, for he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land may not be defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. And you remember here in the garden, when, when, uh, when Adam sinned, God said, cursed is the ground for your sake. In mercy, God did not let that curse hit Adam where it, where it rightfully belonged. It, but, he, but he cursed the ground for Adam's sake, and he said, now you can face the curse of the ground. In the sweat of your brow, uh, will, you make, will you make bread? And he'd have to bust the sod and get, get wheat out and turn it into bread. 
And in the meantime, he'd see that the ground brought forth, except for the grace of God, thorns and thistles. Now, God said after the flood, and I'll just clue you in on this, that he won't curse the ground anymore uh, because man is so pathetic. But there was still a curse for man, and then there was the curse was in the law. Cursed was everyone, uh, and, and the law said you're, that cursed is blessed is everyone who keeps the law, but cursed is everyone who doesn't keep the law, uh, and all things to do them. So the law came comes along and teaches us those uh, whoever wants to read it. You know, the law doesn't say you're a good guy. You can read any law of any kind anywhere, and it doesn't say you're a great guy if you do this. It's all full of penalties if you do this or that or the other thing. So by the law comes a knowledge of offense, and that is guilt. And in the law of God, is there's, there's that curse. There's that curse for disobeying God and sinning. And so here in the law, even a provision of the law is cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So the Lord Jesus Christ comes to earth, becomes a man, and it says, he, and he said he came to fulfill the law. Well, what did he do? He became, he that knew no sin became sin for us. He became a sin offering. He became cursed of God. He hung on a tree. Cursed is everyone that hung on a tree. He took the curse upon himself, and he, took, and he put that, and that curse died with him, that whosoever believes in him is redeemed from the curse. What a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful plan of salvation God has made! Isn't it amazing how God's plan of salvation actually works? How it answers, it answers every problem that that is defined uh, in the scriptures. See, this is the, this is the fact of God's salvation. It makes sense. It actually works. And as we've said before, and we don't tire of saying, our Lord Jesus Christ won salvation to uh, for, for us. He got it the old-fashioned way. He earned it. He took upon himself the curse that was due to Adam's sin. Now, we also can look at 1 Peter, uh, where the, the Apostle Peter writes uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 20, well, let's read, well, let's read verse 21. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Now, here we find that the Lord Jesus Christ did no sin. That means he deserved no punishment. He did no sin. He did no. He deserved no punishment. Neither was guile found in his mouth. He didn't sin in thought, in word, or in deed. And of course, you say, "Well, thoughts. How do you know? You know thoughts by what a person says. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Don't you sometimes surprise yourself by what you say, good or ill? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So." Witnessing the Lord, he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He did not sin, thought, word, or deed, nor could he, by the way. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Now here, verse 24, 1 Peter, Peter chapter 2, verse 24, who his own self 
bear our sins in his own body on the tree. And there it says, on the tree. The Scripture, every word of God is pure. Every word of God inspired, God-breathed. doesn't say on the cross here. It says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being stripes, you were healed. For you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Now let me just say this. Our Lord Jesus Christ bearing our sins in his own body on the tree so that we, being dead to sins, could live or should live unto righteousness. This is, uh, this is the work of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ taking sin upon himself, taking the accusations due to us, taking the curse due to us, taking all of this upon himself, being silent to the accusations, that is to say, taking them, without sin, willingly, he said, I have power to lay my life down, I have power to take it up again, willingly, in his own self, bear our sins in his own body on the tree. So our Lord Jesus Christ effaced, or reversed out, all things lost in the fall, and beyond that. You know, Adam, Adam the whole time, was under a test. He was under a test, would he obey God or not? God withholding his judgment of Adam, good or ill, until, well, until after Adam already sinned. With you and me, friends, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will issue forth his judgment right then. The judgment that is on the Lord Jesus Christ will be your judgment. The life that is in the Lord Jesus Christ will be your life. God will declare you righteous. You will find yourself above and beyond where Adam ever was insofar as you'll be declared righteous by God, something that Adam never was. Not, not only just as if you'd never sinned, but blessed is the man to whom God will not attribute or impute sin. So in all of these things, in the, in the, in the work of the serpent, we, we have unmasked the enemy of God. And now that old serpent, called the old serpent Satan in Revelation 12, he's unmasked. We can deal with him. We can wrestle with him and his minions. We can conduct a spiritual for, uh, war uh, in righteousness. We've, we've looked at the woman, and we realize our place to lead our wives, to stand before them. And, and wives, we've learned to submit ourselves to, to our proper authorities and our husbands and not to usurp them. And finally... In this tree, we see that our Lord Jesus Christ, in his work on the cross, has done that thing which we could not do for ourselves. Now, where we're taking this study is we're going to take the, the, up the next dispensation, our next time, we'll take up the next dispensation, which is the dispensation called the dispensation of conscience. And we're going to take up the, 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 uh, the effect uh, of, of dealing with sin the way God did, and with, with man under now the, the uh, freedom of his own conscience, knowledge of sin, and we're going to see where it takes him. And so we're going to study the impact that sin had on the offspring of Adam. We're going to see how sin is passed on from Adam to his sons, and we're going to look at the, the greater failure of man in every dispensation. And what, you know what we're going to find, friends? We're going to find that man is a total failure, and that God is righteous. 
And that's all God wants to display. It's not that he wants to point out to us in our face our sin, but he wants to point out to us his great love and his great care for us. And all of the Bible uh, is about that story. All of the Bible is about the great love uh, that God has for us.